The last investigator I met with was Dr. Eric Weiner, and to begin, I asked him about a paper he co-authored related to an ongoing working group with the European School of Oncology. The article had the intriguing title, Can Metastatic Breast Cancer Be Cured? And as a related question, I asked Dr. Weiner about the controversial issue of removal of one or more metastases in a patient with breast cancer. In my mind, I think that it's still largely a strategy that should be confined to the investigational setting. That is a general rule. I don't think that we should be attempting to remove limited sites of metastatic disease surgically. And for that matter, I'm not a big fan of techniques like radioablation either in the absence of a symptomatic lesion. But, you know, there is this phase two literature on the topic, and there have certainly been a number of series reported. There is going to be an attempt within the cooperative group system to run a randomized trial looking at local treatment, which will either be surgery or radiation, of oligometastatic disease defined as a limited number of lesions in that particular protocol. It's five or fewer. Five seems like a lot to me, but I think it's very much an open question whether there is some advantage associated with providing local treatment with the hope of improving progression-free and overall survival to a limited number of lesions. So a patient, let's say a younger patient in their 50s who's otherwise healthy, maybe with three, four-year disease-free survival, comes into you with a lesion in the left lobe of their liver, easily removable, nothing else in bone scan, anywhere else. Would you consider sending a patient like that for surgery? Or when you say, you know, outside of trial, I don't think there are any trials right now. Well, so there is going to be this trial in the intergroup. And there are some limited phase two trials at some institutions. Typically, I would not send that person for resection of her liver. You know, I think that there are some, not many medical oncologists who would. But I acknowledge the fact that there are some people who believe that that may be useful. I think the problem, though, particularly with liver metastases, is that rarely is there truly just one lesion there. And if you look hard enough, you often find more. And I think beyond that, microscopically, most of the time there is probably disease in other areas in the liver. Another issue that was addressed in this paper that's been going on for a while is this question of the role, if there is one, of removal of a primary breast cancer in the face of metastatic disease. And again, I think it was a great review. I'm not sure what the conclusion is. Where are we right now with that one? Well, that's another one where we're in desperate need of randomized data and where there is actually a randomized clinical trial that will be starting, led by ECOG, in the cooperative group system in the months ahead. It's been in the planning stages for a long time. There are now probably half a dozen different papers that have suggested that removal of the primary tumor in a patient with metastatic breast cancer is associated with a longer survival. They've tried in most of these papers to look carefully at all of the other prognostic factors because you can easily imagine, of course, that a patient whose medical team 
recommends removal of her breast tumor in the setting of metastatic disease is going to be very different from the patient where that is not recommended. You know, it's far more likely to be recommended in somebody who's got limited disease and who has a better prognosis. But they've tried to control for those factors in these papers. Having said that, there's just no way of entirely controlling for physician bias and a sense that a patient's physician may have that this is the right approach for her. The other weakness in some of these papers is that they mix patients who have had their cancers removed and then are found to have metastatic disease on a subsequent workup, meaning a CT scan done after a woman has a lumpectomy or a mastectomy. They mix those patients with patients who present with obvious symptomatic metastatic breast cancer and who have an intact primary. And those are two very different patient populations. Are there patients where you've actually recommended removal of the primary with metastatic disease on board? So there are. They are typically patients who have very limited metastatic disease where there is some hope that they're going to do well for an extended period of time. And I think that there really is a group of patients with very limited metastatic disease who have never received any systemic therapy prior to presentation. And of course, since they're presenting de novo like this, one presumes they wouldn't have ever received any breast cancer therapy. Where I would think about removing the primary tumor in conjunction with treatment that I would think of as being given with curative hope. People often use the term curative intent I think of it more as hope than anything else. And I think that there are a small number of such patients. And we know that from many of the old series that there are a limited number of patients who have very low volume metastatic breast cancer who get a course of initial treatment and never develop any further problems. Typically that disease is in lymph nodes. Occasionally it's in lung. And I think that what's probably most important is that those patients are patients in all likelihood who have disease that is very responsive to whatever systemic therapy they receive. Any sort of hypotheses about if there is a benefit to removing a primary, what's the mechanism? Of course, Larry Norton likes to use this as a way to get into his self-seeding hypothesis. What do you think about that one? So I don't know. I think that that's a possibility. I think that what you have to presume is that if there is benefit, it's because the tumor is continuing to give off tumor or to allow for the spread of tumor from the breast to other sites that is leading to additional metastatic disease that may, for whatever reasons, be more resistant to therapy. And that somehow by removing that primary tumor, you're limiting metastatic spread even in somebody who's already developed metastases. So let's shift back towards earlier stage disease, which is usually what the surgeons are dealing with. And I'm curious about your take on some of the data that's come out over the past year in terms of sentinel node. From your perspective as a medical oncologist, what are the things that have come out? In particular, the issue of is axillary dissection necessary in every patient who has a positive sentinel node? Yeah, well, I mean, I do think that the so-called Z11 trial was a very important trial. And just to briefly review, 
This was a trial conducted by the American College of Surgeons Cooperative Group where they randomized patients who were receiving lumpectomy followed by radiation. This did not include patients who had mastectomy. But they randomized patients who were getting conservative surgery and radiation and who had a positive sentinel biopsy to either a lymph node dissection or no node dissection. And while they didn't have strict guidelines about the radiation fields in terms of the tangents that were delivered and exactly how those tangents should be delivered, they precluded a radiation to the full axilla or to the supraclavicular area. And what they found was that patients who did not undergo a lymph node dissection appeared to have every bit as good an outcome from the standpoint of both disease-free survival and overall survival and even actually recurrence as patients who underwent the lymph node dissection. I think it's important to note that some amount of the axilla almost certainly was irradiated in all of these patients because tangents hit the lower levels of the axilla. And it's also important to point out that these were patients who had one or two sentinel nodes that were involved. They didn't take patients who had three or more nodes identified on a sentinel biopsy that contained cancer. And in the control arm of the study, that is the patients who were randomized to the node dissection, approximately 28% of those patients actually had disease in their axilla. The study never was able to complete because accrual was very slow, and some have argued that it is pretty clearly underpowered. The problem, though, is that we will probably never have a better study because I don't think that you could replicate this study. Certainly, you couldn't replicate it in the US. And in my view, this study builds on other work that has been done. And I think it suggests pretty clearly that there is not going to be a major benefit from doing completion node dissections in the typical patient who presents with one or two positive sentinel lymph nodes and who is going to be receiving lumpectomy and radiation. I can come up with specific cases where I would be less comfortable with it because I would be very suspicious that the person had a high burden of disease in the axilla and in that setting, I think that we really can be less confident about this approach. But I think that for the vast majority of patients who have a positive sentinel biopsy, this is an approach that can be followed. Of course, there is another issue that's really more medical oncology related, which is, are there situations where you're going to approach a patient differently if you know they have five nodes involved as opposed to one? So my answer to that question is, there are such situations, but they are vanishingly limited. More and more, our treatment decisions are based on the biologic features of the tumor rather than on the precise tumor staging. And I think if a patient has a positive lymph node, generally speaking, that means that she has enough disease that we want to optimize whatever biologic approach we're opting for, whether that is HER2-directed therapy in a patient with HER2-positive disease or chemotherapy alone in a patient with triple negative disease. And I think the only situation where you really may 
think that this would have a big effect on your decision making is in the patient with ER positive disease for whom in the setting of one positive lymph node and a cancer that's low to intermediate grade with a, perhaps even a relatively low oncotype score if one chooses to do that, where you might opt for hormonal therapy alone in spite of the positive lymph node. And if you knew that that patient had multiple positive lymph nodes, in spite of the biologic features of the tumor, you might be tempted to give chemotherapy, or you probably would be tempted. And of course, you're talking about a patient with HER2-negative ER-positive disease. I am, yeah. I mean, in the setting of HER2-positive disease, I don't think that knowing that a patient has five positive lymph nodes versus one positive lymph node will affect my decision-making. And in the patient with triple negative disease, it won't either. And in truth, it's the rare patient with ER-positive HER2-negative disease where I really need an exact lymph node count to make a decision about chemotherapy. Well, that kind of does lead into the issue of genomic evaluation in a patient in general and node positive specifically. So again, going back to that situation of a younger, otherwise healthy woman, but now with an ER positive HER2 negative tumor that has one positive sentinel node, in general, are you going to be thinking about genomic evaluation? And if so, which one? Well, so it's going to depend for me on a number of factors. So in somebody who has a high-grade tumor or weak ER staining or a progesterone receptor negative tumor, which tends to be a little less responsive to hormonal therapy, certainly in the metastatic setting that's true, and where we know that the risk of an early recurrence is higher in the setting of a PR negative tumor, in those situations, I'm going to tend to give chemotherapy without needing any kind of genomic evaluation. In the patient who's got a low to intermediate grade tumor that is strongly ER and PR positive, that's a situation where I am somewhat ambivalent about chemotherapy, and that ambivalence extends to patients who have one or two or three positive lymph nodes. I know that many of my colleagues don't feel that way, and there are people who believe that any patient who has positive lymph nodes should still be receiving chemotherapy. I tend to think of this a little differently. And in that patient, I do think about some type of additional evaluation to help me and help the patient make a decision about chemotherapy. And if I'm going to think about some additional evaluation, at least in 2011, that's usually getting a recurrence score from genomic health or Oncotype DX. So that also leads into a conceptual question that I was curious for your take on, because it's interesting now when we do education in other areas, we're seeing genomic evaluation and actually variations of the Oncotype first came out in colon, started to look at it in renal, and then the GU symposium for the first time I saw it in prostate, thank the Lord. But when these other tumors start looking at these, they kind of look over the fence at breast cancer and get into this issue of a predictive versus prognostic factor that they've learned from the breast people. Can you kind of go into that a little bit? In terms of? In terms of, you know, sort of what is it that you're really looking for? The fact that we've kind of evolved, I think, away from looking for prognostic factors towards looking for predictive factors and what that really means. Sure. Generally speaking, one doesn't 
simply want to know whether the likelihood of a cancer recurring is high or low. Although that information is in and of itself useful, particularly if the answer is low, because if the likelihood of cancer coming back is very low, it's hard to improve upon a good outcome. But particularly for the patients who have an intermediate or higher risk of having a recurrence of cancer, what we want to know is not what that risk is, but what we can do to reduce that risk. This is really a big change for breast cancer because I can remember in the pre-Ocotype days there were like thousands of papers on all these prognostic factors. Right. And I think that to a very large extent, prognosis is much less interesting than prediction. What's important about the estrogen receptor is that it predicts for the benefit of hormonal therapy. Right. And the same can be really said about HER2. Now, having a HER2-positive cancer generally speaking, is associated with a worse prognosis without any treatment than having a HER2-negative cancer. But what's so critical about HER2 is that it predicts for the benefit of anti-HER2 therapy and in the adjuvant setting specifically for the benefit associated with trastuzumab. I think that what has made the Oncotype DX test particularly interesting in breast cancer, and to some extent what has led to the popularity of the test, because it is ordered a great deal, is the fact that it gives two pieces of information. It, on the one hand, tells you something about prognosis, and for patients who have low recurrence scores, the prognosis is clearly much better than for patients who have intermediate or high scores. But Importantly, it also tells you something about the benefits of chemotherapy. And based on the studies that have been done, and I acknowledge that they are not perfect and the number of events in those studies is still fairly limited, but it pretty strongly suggests that if a patient has a low recurrence score, that there's going to be very little benefit from adding chemotherapy. And in contrast, for patients who have high recurrence scores, there's in all likelihood going to be a pretty big benefit associated with adding chemotherapy. Now, you can't use something like Oncotype as a test in and of itself, and one has to pay attention to tumor grade and HER2, and for that matter, we rarely would get a test like Oncotype DX in a patient who's got a HER2-positive cancer because there just isn't ambivalence about treatment. And one also has to look at the tumor burden because... In a patient who has a very small node-negative cancer, even if that's a somewhat more biologically aggressive cancer, the prognosis is still going to be much better than in a patient who's got a large node-positive cancer, and that's going to have an impact on the benefits of any treatment like chemotherapy. It's been really interesting for us kind of looking at all these different tumors, what happened in colon cancer, because initially the colon cancer investigators weren't that impressed by that they have a different assay, but sort of developed with similar methodology. But the docs in practice started using it because there are data out there in terms of predicting absolute benefit. And they sort of jumped on that even before the investigators. One of the things about all these data sets is kind of a new way to do research, which is kind of, I guess you can call it retrospective prospective. Yep. Maybe you can go through what was done in Ocotype and what you think about the methodology of going back to previous randomized studies? Well, you know, I think that the ultimate gold standard is a prospective randomized trial where, you know, from the very beginning, you're intending to look at a predictive factor 
or a predictive test to see how well it can help you determine who benefits and who doesn't. But the fact is that to do such prospective studies takes many, many years. And all of us, while on the one hand we're cautious about discarding therapies that have been used for many years and could have some benefit, we also want to make progress as rapidly as possible. And so one approach to this has been to identify studies that have been completed in the past where there was randomization and the methodology was very sound and look retrospectively at those studies, but it's a retrospective look within a prospectively defined cohort. And that's very different than, for example, going back and identifying a series of cases and trying to match a group of people with some set of controls. The advantage of going back to a prospectively designed randomized trial is just that, there was randomization. And that's a very powerful tool. So I think that we can't put quite as much emphasis on these studies as we could on a prospectively designed trial but they're far more valuable than most retrospective looks. And in the setting of Oncotype, what's been done is to look at two of the NSABP trials, B14 and B20, and it was within B20, which was an old trial that randomized patients to tamoxifen alone or tamoxifen plus chemotherapy, where they were able to identify this predictive role for Oncotype, and where in patients who had a high Oncotype score or whose tumors had a high oncotype score and who went on to receive chemotherapy, there was a major benefit from chemotherapy. And a similar result was seen in Kathy Albane's work looking at an old SWOG study that focused exclusively on postmenopausal women and used anthracycline-based chemotherapy. I think another part of that whole story is, you know, what are the trials we're doing now that someday we're going to be able to look at other markers with? And of course, not long after the Oncotype data started to come out, they started, you were involved with the Taylor X study, looking at patients with node negative disease. That's a gigantic data set we'll be able to tap into to confirm this and look at other stuff. And my understanding is there's now kind of a similar effort going on with node positive disease. There is. So it's important to point out that in Taylor X, the study itself is not testing the Oncotype assay. It's assuming that Oncotype is actually an assay that does sort out different groups of patients. And in that study, which is now completed enrollment, patients who had Oncotype scores that were less than 11 were selected out and did not receive chemotherapy and were not randomized. Patients who had scores over 25 were also taken out of the randomization and it was recommended that they receive chemotherapy. And for patients who had what I'll call an adjusted intermediate range score, because it's different from the range that was initially provided when the papers came out, but in patients who had scores between 11 and 25, there was a randomization to hormonal therapy with or without chemotherapy. And Taylor X will very much help us understand whether there is a benefit and how big the benefit is of chemotherapy in women who have these intermediate range scores. 
Although to me, you know, it also be kind of reassuring to see that the recurrence rates in the low patients and in the high patients with chemo are sort of in the range that we might expect. Yeah. So in the low range, I believe they are collecting those data. In the patients who have the high scores, my recollection is that there are relatively limited data being collected and they are in no way trying to control the chemotherapy. So I think it may be a little hard to learn much from that group of patients with the high scores, although hopefully we'll get something from it. And I think that, as you pointed out, for all of these patients, and particularly for those with the scores between 11 and 25 who are randomized, not only will they have the opportunity to assess the value of chemotherapy, but this will serve as a very rich source of biologic material for the future. And you know, we'll have a many thousand person randomized trial of chemotherapy versus no chemotherapy. So it'll be hugely helpful. Well, that excites me for sure. The second study is the study that's being called Responder. And this is a trial that SWOG is running. And it also uses Oncotype to differentiate patients at higher and lower risk of recurrence and who are presumed to have a lesser or greater benefit from chemotherapy. And it randomizes patients who have one to three positive lymph nodes and have Oncotype scores between zero and 25 to hormonal therapy or hormonal therapy plus chemotherapy. So this is the study you know, for the doctor and patient who believe that at the moment, chemotherapy is the standard for any patient who has lymph node positive disease, but who at the same time are willing to consider the possibility that chemotherapy may be adding very little or not at all to the outcome for many of these patients. And I suspect that it will accrue well because I do think that many doctors believe that chemotherapy is absolutely standard for these patients with positive lymph nodes, but they're open to the idea of looking at less. I will confess that I think that the study is entirely reasonable for patients who have what I think of as intermediate scores. For the 60-year-old woman who's got one positive lymph node and an Oncotype score of three, it would be hard for me to get excited about randomizing that person to chemotherapy or not. I think that we have a pretty good sense already that for that particular patient, and of course there are always exceptions to the sort of general rule, and that's why not every single patient gets included in a randomized trial. But I think for that particular patient, I would just use hormonal therapy and I wouldn't randomize such a patient to chemotherapy or not. And just to try to give the surgeons you know, more of a peek into what the oncologist might be thinking, I guess the other issue is kind of the patient perspective, the individual patient. Are they the kind of patient who might want chemo no matter what? Are they the kind of patient who won't want chemo no matter what? I guess that's another critical factor. It absolutely is. And in my mind, decision-making about chemotherapy has to take into account the biologic subtype of the cancer, that is, you know, whether it's ER positive or ER negative, HER2 positive, HER2 negative, needs to take into account the other features of the cancer, like grade, the tumor burden, tests sometimes like Oncotype, and then finally the preferences of the patient and, importantly, comorbidities. Because, of course, in patients who have comorbidities, there is both the potential for added side effects and toxicities with chemotherapy, 
and also the very real concern, particularly for patients who have ER positive and HER2 negative disease, that there may be competing mortality that eliminates any benefit from chemotherapy. You know, the term that came out in breast cancer that now starting, again, you're hearing it now in colon and maybe these other tumors is the patient and physician on the fence. Yeah. So you look at everything and you're still not really sure what you want to do, I guess. Those are the people which you're looking for more information. It's when the doctor and patient pair are ambivalent about chemotherapy in ER positive diseases when I think a test like Oncotype should be obtained. And if I can make one more comment, I think that there's been a bit of a sea change in the sense that 10 and 15 years ago, I think that we were all convinced, rightly or wrongly, that the vast majority of patients wanted to take a course of chemotherapy if the benefits were what I'll call minuscule at times. So, you know, there were studies, and I don't think they were studies that were necessarily methodologically so very sound, but studies that suggested that patients would opt for a course of chemotherapy even if the benefit was half of 1%. And maybe it's just my own patient practice at the moment, and maybe it's somehow my approach, but I don't find that that's the case anymore. And when I talk to patients about a course of chemotherapy, most of them tell me that they think 1% is pretty darn small. And where I find that people begin to think about receiving a course of chemotherapy is when the benefits are in the low single digits, but not 1%. So, you know, 2 to 3% people think about it, 5% most people are willing to pretty seriously consider a course of chemotherapy. And I think that's in keeping with the fact that in the breast cancer advocacy community, there's been a real push to try to come up with therapies that have a bigger therapeutic gain than some that we've had in the past. You were talking about the methodology and thinking that's come out in terms of this and the way Oncotype was developed. And in fact, they're doing the same thing in these other tumors. What do we know right now about the data set with the other major genomic assay out there, the print, And in addition to the data, where are they right now in terms of the tissue collection? Yeah. So I think that the biggest issue in terms of print in terms of applying it to our population in the US is really twofold. Or I shouldn't say the biggest issue. There are two issues in terms of applying mammoprint in the US population. One is that it has required fresh tissue and that's not something that is usually obtained by most centers in the US. And the other is that unlike Oncotype, the data that Mammoprint provides useful predictive information is really very limited. They have not been able to use the same sort of cohorts that Oncotype has been able to tap into. So their retrospective studies, in my mind, are really retrospective studies of the typical fashion, meaning that they're not looks at carefully assembled patients who entered clinical trials and specifically randomized clinical trials. So at the St. Gallen consensus conference recently, the feeling was that Mammoprint was not a test that we could say was clearly predictive. And I think that's in keeping with what all of us feel.